Never put off tomorrow what can be done the day after tomorrow just as well. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, shit shows. Happy New Year. Happy New Year 2023. What the hell? <laughs> Seriously, what the hell? 2023? <sighs> uh, I hope you guys had a wonderful New Year's. Did you set a resolution? I did, and I've already failed. Uh, I'll get get to that in a second. I just wanted to share, I shared this in the Patreon group on Sunday, and I think it's important to share here. You know, one thing that I really struggled with in the past was around Christmas and around New Year's, feeling so much shame and insecurity about being single. And especially like when, you know, the clock strikes 12 and just not having anyone to kiss And always having this thought of like, oh, maybe next year, or not even maybe next year. It was like, oh, next year there will be somebody. And just feeling like shit about myself because I didn't, I wasn't in a relationship at the holidays. And boy, what a relief it is to not feel that way anymore. I mean, granted, it would be nice to have someone to kiss, but it's not uh, all consuming. It doesn't send me into the shame spiral that it once was. I just made out with Hawaiian rolls and spinach dip, cold spinach dip. (laughs) You know, the kind with like the, the soup mix, you know, like the spinach and the, it's like, it's basically like eating a salad. It is with, you know, like a whole thing of sour cream and mayonnaise and the spinach that you put in it and the soup mix, the vegetable soup mix makes it like essentially like eating a salad. And then you just, you just stick it in that delicious Hawaiian rolls. Am I right? Am I right? Um, The other thing too is not feeling the pressure that I once had to have big plans. So I, yeah, I used to stress about that for kind of all holidays. Like if I didn't have something really exciting and fun to do and really stressing about that and then not feeling good about myself, if I didn't have anything to do. I would say it was like until the day before I didn't know what I was going to do and I was okay with that. Um, but then I did get an invite to do something. So just recognizing the growth there, right? It's important that we, we recognize our growth. Uh, so today we are diving deep with Laura Connell, or should I say Laura K. Connell. So she is a trauma-informed coach. She has a book that's coming out in September called It's Not Your Fault. And we connected on Instagram. She actually reached out to me to speak at this workshop that she's going to be doing. So you're going to hear us discuss that at the end of the interview. It was supposed to be at the end of this month, but she just let me know that she's postponing it uh, for a few months. So just side note there, and I'll let you know when it's going to be rescheduled for once I have that information. So one of, we talk about a bunch of things, but one of the things that we talk about is procrastination and self-sabotage. 
So let's talk about that. Uh, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about all year, but really a lot in the, in the past few days. So my New Year's resolution that like never really came to be. So here's something that I don't want to talk about that I don't want to share on the podcast, but I'm going to share right here right now because we talk about the shit that we don't want to talk about. I have a serious addiction to games on my phone. Uh, it's slightly embarrassing. I will tell you what they are. So uh, Candy Crush Soda Saga. And then I play this other one called, um, it's like, I don't know, it's like a, tri- a pyramid solitaire game. When I told friend of the pod, Tiffany, you know, she's like, oh, I play the Candy Crush. And then, you know, I think she was kind of down. <laughs> I don't think she, she, like you probably right now are thinking it's not that bad. But then when I told her what level I was on, um, it is that bad. <laughs> she realized it is that bad. So this past Sunday in our group, somebody was sharing, I hope you're listening right now, so you know that you're not alone, but she was talking about the stupid games on her phone and how much time she wastes playing them. And she was like, I finally deleted them. I did it. I deleted them. Well, guess what? I've tried that. <laughs> I've tried to delete them and I just, um, I just re-download them. And so my New Year's resolution was to stop playing games on my phone. And I I mean, I just feel, I feel so much shame when I think about it, to be completely honest. I think that if I went to look on my phone to see how many hours I spent in 2022 playing Candy Crush Soda Saga and the Pyramid Solitaire game, um, maybe that's what I need to do because I really think that that could, (sighs) it's bad. Um, but so yeah, so deleting them off my phone isn't enough. So I've been researching ways to block the games on my phone, like a, like a, like a parent thing so that I can't, you know, I can set the limit. You can set the limits guys, but I just override that shit. I override that shit. So I'm like, how do I set up a foolproof way to block these games from my phone. And so then I found this one app called like Freedom something. And it says that you can restrict apps for a specific time period and that there's no override. Like there's no way for you to override it. So I downloaded it and it doesn't work. And I paid like 40 bucks from it. So a little bit frustrated there. Um, I think I know what I can do. I think I'll just tell you right now, I downloaded the game or I deleted the games on my phone a couple hours ago. I'm not sure how long I'll last. This is embarrassing. I'm telling you, I I shouldn't be embarrassed, but it's an addiction. It's an addiction Um, and something that I've talked with my therapist a lot about. But um, (laughs) this is what I think I'm going to do. So you can set up, you know, like the time restrictions on your phone through like the parental thing. There's a way to do it to where you can set a code so that you can't override it or, you know, change it. And it's separate than what your iPhone code would be. So I think what I'm going to do is the next time I see my friend, Jessica, I don't know if she's going to be listening. I'm going to have her set up that code, like give her my phone and have her set it up. 
so that I can't play those games. But then let's be honest, am I just going to find other games to download? Or am I just going to start dissociating by social media? Like everybody talks about their issues with social media. I don't have issues with that. I have issues with fucking Candy Crush, okay? But let's talk about this. So I've been talking a lot about, thinking a lot about shame, procrastination, self-sabotage. Because really what this is, is a way for me to get a shame hit, right? It is a way for me to get a shame hit. It is a way for me to make me feel like shit about myself by spending lots of time playing games and then not getting the other stuff done. And then at the end of the day, feeling really bad about myself for all the things that I didn't get done. And um, it really is all it's, you know, it's a it's a trauma response. It's um, it's a, a coping mechanism, you know, whether it is toxic productivity, which I know a lot of y'all struggle with, or procrastination. Again, I feel like I would rather be in the toxic productivity end of things than procrastination. Just how I kind of feel like being an avoidant attacher sounds less painful than being anxious. I feel like toxic productivity or being a perfectionist sounds better than being like an underachiever and a procrastinator. I understand they're both not good, but they both come from the same place, right? It's it's a sense of shame and fear. And I think what I've realized is that I am not showing, and this is something that I talk, Laura talks about in the, in the interview, about how I really have just been shaming myself for wasting time, not getting the things done that I need to get done, and, and thinking that I can just like snap out of it, right? Like just, okay, like just don't do it tomorrow. Just don't do it tomorrow. And it's not, well, number one, it's not that simple. And number two, shaming myself is definitely not going to help me to stop doing it. And so for the past few days, I've been trying to just get really curious about what is it? Like, what is it? Because it's a it's a form of self-protection in a way. It's a, a faulty form of self-protection. But I... I'm trying to protect myself from from something or I'm trying to avoid feeling something. And so really just trying to sit with myself in the past few days and just really ask myself, what is it that still needs to be healed here? And what is the fear? What is the fear um, in putting off some of these tasks? So I was just, I just practiced this for, before I sat down to record. So it's 645 right now. It's on Tuesday. One way that my procrastination shows up is that I wait for forever to record this part, my first part of the episodes, until like super late at night. And I just kind of keep putting it off or I keep like researching more things or reading more books or just overthinking what I'm going to say because I feel like I have to say something so powerful and so moving and it needs to be really, really good or you're going to realize you don't like this podcast anymore. And so then I just like put it off, put it off, put it off. And so I just asked myself, like, what is it? What is it I'm afraid of? And that's what it is. I guess it's like fear of of failure or fear of not being good enough. So here I am. It's 645. I am not going to re-record this. If I fuck this up, I'm not going to re-record this at 10 o'clock tonight. So this is, you get what you get here. Okay, you get what you get. I'm not going to edit this, this shit, okay? Um, although I really want to now. <laughs> uh, so really getting curious about, yeah, what am I protecting myself from? 
It also is the addiction to excitement piece, right? I think that that is a large part of the the procrastination that we do is just it's creating the unmanageability and sending us into a state of hypervigilance. And then it's also just a way for us to just reaffirm those those faulty beliefs that we still hold about ourselves. It's like, if I put shit off, like you're such a loser. It's not that I think that I'm lazy. I know that I'm not lazy. It's fear. And it's like feeling like a child and having all of this like adult stuff seems so scary and like trying to have a business and not really knowing what I'm doing. And the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about too is that my scapegoat role. The way that I saved my family and the role that I played in my family was to be the fuck up. And when I fucked up, everybody else was okay. And so is it this fear of success means the demise of my family or that I have to keep myself small or I need to self-sabotage as a way to save my family? And so I think that there might be a piece of that there too. But it's just more, more layers of the onion, more layers of the onion. This year, I just, I want to feel like I'm just not constantly just trying to come up for air. I want to feel like life is manageable. But I also need to have some grace and patience with myself. So... TBD. (laughs) TBD. We'll see how this goes. Um, I know you guys can relate and um, thank you for loving me and accepting me despite my Candy Crush and my Tri-Peaks solitaire pyramids (laughs) solitaire addiction. Okay, let's let's uh, move it along. But let's first take care of some biz. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my newest Patreon members, my newest members of the Sutra Nation. I'm just going to keep saying this shit until you start saying it with me. So Patreon, you're definitely not going to join now, um, (laughs) is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. Uh, Don't worry, you don't have to do that in the group. So thank you, thank you, thank you to the following fine ass shit shows. Chloe, Suzette, Nita, M, Bree, Mary, Christina, Morgan, Jenny, Janet, Sophie, Emily, Lindsay, Lisa, and Scabrielle. Thank you, shit shows, so fucking much. How about the rest of you follow suit? Patreon.com slash adult child. If you don't want to hear me say, Chitonation, then you need to join the Chitonation now. I'm sorry. This is a little bit unhinged. I wish I could use it as if I'm in Candy Crush withdrawals, but you guys know that I'm this weird uh, always. Next, how about you give me a little follow on Insta on the TikTok at Adult Hod Pod. Give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. I just want to say thank you guys so much. My goal was to, well, initially it was to get to a thousand by the end of the year, but then I made that by December. We ended the year, we began the new year with uh, 1,057 reviews. So let's go, baby. Let's go. Our goal is to get to 2,000 by February 1st, okay? 
And then last but not least, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this month, which is Eleanor Health. Eleanor has a variety of services helping both those suffering from addiction and those who are impacted by addiction. They have locations in Massachusetts, Texas, Louisiana, New Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, and Washington. They also offer telehealth for all of those um, states. And I, I like what they're doing because it's not a one size fits all. This is not a cookie cutter um, treatment center like many are. And um, I've had personal experience with that. So, so go check out the show notes for information on all of their shit. Thanks. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. Well, it was my pleasure to introduce. Do I need to say the K? Laura K. Connell. Do we? Need you know to what's Laura funny? K? The only reason I have that is because when I went to get the website domain, lauraconnell.com was taken. So I Who just is put it? my Who middle is she? initial. Who is the other Laura Connell? I don't know. I think it's something in finance or something like that. Nothing to do with what I do. So I just threw the K in there. So it's up to you whether you say it. It's- we'll get rid of the other Laura Connell. She's just okay. non-deserving. So Laura K. Connell. <laughs> <laughs> She is a um, a trauma-informed coach. She's an upcoming author. You guys are going to love the title of her book. It's called It's Not Your Fault. Well, first of all, you're from Canada. Mm-hmm. I might have an O Canada moment, which is like, if I ever interject with just like a really random comment, that's called my O Canada moment. Because I was talking to a Canadian, she started talking, and then I just interrupted her. And I was like, oh, you're from Canada, right? So do you like to sit in, um, do you like maple syrup baths and you eat poutine and watch hockey? <laughs> That's exactly my whole life. Yeah. That's Are it. you a huge hockey fan? You know, I'm not, I'm really not, but sometimes I feel just by being born in Toronto that I, I have to be a Leafs fan. It's kind of in your blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. I would imagine. Um, okay. So how the hell did you get here? Yeah. So it's interesting. I was talking to you a little bit about um, being in the 12-step program and getting sober 12 years ago. Had you tried to get sober before? Or was that your first time trying? That I had tried on my own, um, but it wasn't true sobriety. It was the old sit on your hands, white knuckle, that kind of thing. And the best I did was I 
did five months like that, five months without a drink on my own. But like I said, it just, there was none of the change that you get with a true sobriety program, right? So after that five months, I ended up relapsing, of course. And it was that relapse that made me realize that, yeah, I really can't stop on my own. Like I can't and I need help. And that was when I went ahead and got the help that I needed. When did alcohol become a problem for you? You know what? I started when I was like 16, 17, and it was really a response to what was going on at home. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a very chaotic household. I had a lot of emotional abuse and neglect. I would say I developed the dreaded, fearful, avoidant attachment style, if you know anything about attachment styles. Mm -hmm. And so I just really felt very alone in the world, very fearful. I was definitely in survival mode, survival brain. So I never thought about kind of the long-term consequences of things. I just needed to do what I had to do right now to stay safe. Fearful avoidant is disorganized? The same, yeah. How do you feel about condiments? Condiments? Mm -hmm. Like ketchup and stuff? Huh. It's funny because I used to be almost addicted to ketchup, but since I've kind of given up sugar, I don't really use it. But hot sauce is essential to me. So I have this theory that anxious attachers, they love condiments. They use (laughs) a lot of condiments and avoidance don't, or maybe they like like a little bit of mustard, but I've been like conducting this research for like a year now. And it's like, 85% 85% true. I haven't, I don't have a theory for, um, <laughs> I, I don't have a theory for disorganized. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> hot sauce is my big one. <laughs> um, And so when was the moment that you really realized that you had an issue with alcohol? Gosh, <laughs> I think I realized I had an issue with alcohol for most of the time I was drinking. But it's funny that whenever I would ask someone I knew whether they thought I had a problem, they would always reassure me that I didn't, you know, because all the people I surrounded myself with were drinking a lot too. So they didn't want someone questioning that. Right. And so I can remember things like asking my best friend, you know, do you think I drink too much? Do you think I have a problem? She'd go, just the fact that you're asking that means you don't have a problem. <laughs> no, just the fact that you are asking that means you do have a problem. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, and I think it really ramped up when I have two children. And after I had my second child, I think it really ramped up just because mm-hmm. I was dealing with a ton of emotional neglect from my husband, who was the avoidant attachment style because of his own childhood issues. His family was very dysfunctional. My family was severely dysfunctional. So just being in this position of having two little kids and really feeling totally unsupported, totally unequipped, uh, it just kind of drove me to escape into the drink even more. So that's when it really ramped up when I was in my 30s, I would say. And did you get sober before you got divorced? Right after, interestingly enough. Yeah, my husband was a drinker too. I can't say whether he's an alcoholic or a functioning alcoholic. I don't know, but he was a daily drinker. And um, 
Yeah. As soon as I got out of that within a year, I'd been married for 11 years and with him seven before that for so like my whole adult life, as soon as I got out of it, I started to look at myself honestly. And within a year I was in the 12 step program. And so did you hit an, an adult child bottom in sobriety? Um, that's an interesting question. What do you mean by that? Well, so for me at nine years sober, you know, I hit a, well, seven and nine years sober, I just hit a horrible emotional bottom in which I finally came to terms with the true impact that my childhood had on me. It was like, for me, I feel like I had to get sober and, you know, like we say how trauma comes up when, when your body and your psyche knows that you're ready to handle it. I feel like it was through sobriety after I got, you know, kind of solid in that arena that that stuff really started to come to the surface for me. Mm -hmm. And so for years, I didn't know what the hell was wrong with me. And it was at seven and nine years sober is when I finally like had that aha moment and realized the true impact that my childhood had on me. Granted, I had always known that it was less than ideal, but I had been clueless to the fact that what I experienced in dating was complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that. It's actually quite recent that I have uh, made the link between my childhood trauma and what I was doing to myself as an adult. It's been probably within the last five years, I would say that I've made that connection. You write at the right time. That's when it happens is usually between five to 10 years sober is like when that stuff comes up. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's one thing I'm kind of ambivalent about the 12 step program. Like I'm neither for or against, but I can see the things that it's lacking is that insight into how Mm -hmm. our past trauma affects our current outcomes. Right. And so I didn't get that in the program for sure. I got that with my own investigation and I can't even remember what really brought me to it, but I think it was just a, just a continuous looking at myself and kind of asking questions about why I was doing what I was doing kind of in the same way. I would ask myself why I can't stop drinking, just getting really curious about it. And I start to notice things like, not following through on projects and feeling like it's really impossible to complete this. Like I'm always going for the next shiny object. And this is more than procrastination. Like, you know how people joke about procrastination It's no big deal. Everybody does it, but this was different. This felt like something that I had no control over. And so I started to learn how even that was related to childhood trauma because the dangers of visibility, you know, how much I was hiding, not wanting to be seen. So I had to overcome all of that. Well, it's all self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you don't, huh? So there wasn't like a one aha, big aha moment. You know what? If there was, I can't think of it right now. It feels more like something that happened gradually. Mm -hmm. Um, perhaps if I thought about it a little more, it might come to me, but you know, right now, let me know if you think of it. (laughs) Absolutely. And so what, what were you doing professionally 
at, at, the, at that point? Pretty much everything I didn't want to do. <laughs> In a nutshell, I was doing things that, you know, really didn't use my talents or skills. I was doing like uh-huh. administrative stuff. I was working in offices as assistants to other people. You know, I was doing what I needed to, to get benefits for my kids, which is, you know, valid, but it was also kind of an excuse not to pursue the things that I wanted to. So I didn't really trust myself enough to pursue the things I was good at. Even writing, I've always been a writer and I've always done that on the side but I didn't pursue it full force until really a couple years ago. Uh So um, at the time I was just basically doing office work. I was stalking you on your website and I like went back to like your very, very earliest blogs Mm -hmm. and it's all about decluttering. Yes. That was a huge part of my journey, to be honest, decluttering my space led to decluttering my mind. You know, it's kind of a cliche, but it really is true. That led to all the investigation I started to do internally. And so you might see the blogs back at that time are a lot more kind of vanilla than the intensity of the ones as you go forward more. And that's part of my trajectory. And part of that was that I didn't want to reveal all this stuff Mm -hmm. about myself and about how I felt because I had been so shamed in the past by the people in my life. Anytime I tried to be emotionally honest, it just wasn't accepted. And I was very vilified for that. So to protect myself, I really kept all that under wraps. Uh And like I said, until about two years ago, and I think the pandemic had something to do with this, you know, it made a lot of people, including myself, rethink things. And I just felt like I'm not going to hide anymore. You know, I'm just going to tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may. That was one way that might, because I think that with the clutter and stuff, it's just like a way of um, creating unmanageability in a way mm-hmm. for our outsides to represent what we're feeling on the inside. So I had that too. I wouldn't say I, was, I wasn't like hoarder status, but like if you like opened up closets or drawers, like it was a fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I got this, I got like a professional organizer, um, to come over, turn, um, another gal and they just, took everything out. She reorganized everything for me. Um, and God, what a difference that made when I would like walk into my apartment and sit in my space. She's actually writing a book now, but kind of more on like the psychology behind it and just all the experiences that she's had going into these people's homes and looking at the trauma aspect of it as well. So I'm going to have her on, which I'm excited about. Um, But God, it's so hard to feel good about yourself. Like when you're walking into a nightmare, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting too, that there's when we clutter and hoard, there's all these things that we don't want to look at. Like I can remember that feeling of there being a drawer or closet. And I'm just like, I don't want to look at that. And it's such a parallel to how we don't want to look at things in ourselves, you know, Uh they, one really does impact the other. And as soon as I started, like, just looking at every single thing I owned and asking whether it belongs in my life or not, that had such a huge impact, you know, it started helping me to set boundaries and ask the same question about 
the people in my life, the things I was doing, you know, it was huge. It's like the same thing with like making appointments for the dentist or like, you know what I mean? Like you just like put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. Yeah. And that's something I still struggle with, you know, that's the adult child in me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Adult things are hard. (laughs) Still trying to figure it out. So prior to you having this kind of revelation um, that your, you know, self-sabotaging behaviors were connected to your childhood. What was your understanding of your childhood? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that as a child, I'm not sure I really knew anything was wrong because I hear these stories of children who are in these terrible households and they have this cognizance that these people are crazy, you know, and I didn't have that. I think I always thought something was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And that just might be my personality because they say some people internalize. It's safer. It's not safe for us to think that our parents are the problem because they're the ones that are taking care of us. So it's easier mm-hmm. for us to think that we're the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is safer, like you say, because you don't want to admit that these people who are responsible for you actually don't care that much about you, you know? So the very first incident I can remember that kind of changed me. And I, I got to this by reading a book by Mastin Kip. Have you heard of him? Yep. Yeah. And he had this book called Claim Your Power. And he talks a lot about these issues that you and I are talking about today. And he calls it the inciting incident. And he says it's something that happened to you probably early in childhood and it kind of changed everything. And so for me, I feel like that happened when I was like three years old. And my mother um, was on the phone. And I was like trying to get her attention. I was jumping up and down, you know, I probably in my young mind didn't really have any idea what the phone was or how she was using it or whatever. I just knew that I wanted her attention. And after a couple minutes of this, without any warning, she just reaches over and smacks me across the face. And that had a huge impact on me. First of all, when I think back on that, I can't believe that I ever acted like that, like a kid who was trying to get attention and was flamboyant, because I became so the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. And that incident sounds kind of innocuous, or maybe not that big of a deal. But the impact was huge and it really did change me. And I did become a child who was very quiet, very withdrawn, very shy. And so kind of reclaiming that three-year-old has been part of my job. Somebody has shared a very, very similar, I don't know who it was, but like almost the exact same story that they Mm. were trying to get their parents' attention while they were on the the phone. And they, Mm -hmm. I think they threw something at them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And the lack of communication there and sort of the idea that I should be reading her mind, even when I'm a little kid and and that it's all about her needs. So that was kind of the climate in the household. My mother was the most toxic person. She was, you know, I've talked to therapists who suggested she might have had borderline personality disorder, but some kind of undiagnosed mental illness, right? She was not capable of empathy or compassion, and just very narcissistic. 
And so that was the source of a lot of my pain. And then on the other side, my father was very withdrawn. He was emotionally neglectful. So he just didn't do anything to protect me. He was just kind of a ghost almost like he was a body, but he was just kind of not really there in any other way, except the physical. I don't even remember him really looking me in the eyes or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? So that was the climate. And I can't stress enough. And when I tell people, sometimes they can't believe it. I can't stress enough how neglected and rejected I was like, just never hearing a kind word, never hearing an encouragement, never hearing good job, you know, never getting any guidance on what to do. And so those things really shaped me. And of course, you know, led to the coping mechanism, such as the drinking. Did you have siblings? Yeah, I had one sibling. Yeah. And it's really interesting because she went kind of the opposite way. And as you know, siblings have very different experiences, right? And I think with her, whereas I became the people pleaser and the, the low confidence and the fearful avoidant, she actually became someone who set out to get her needs met. So mm -hmm. I think she kind of said, I need to take care of myself. And now she's the one with the very rigid boundaries. You know, she's the avoidant attachment. Um, she's got very good confidence, you know, so we had very different reactions to the abuse we were treated to in the home. Did she, have you guys been able to have conversations about this? Like since you've been, no, she won't have any emotional conversation. And anytime I've kind of, I mean, not even the least little bit, anytime I've tried to elevate a conversation above really small talk, it's been met with a death stare and the silent treatment. She just will not go there. So for that reason, we don't have a lot of contact. I'm not no contact, but I don't really hear from her and, I don't really instigate conversation. She lives in England, so it, there's not really a lot of opportunity to see each other unless we put forth the effort. And I kept in touch with her because of my kids who are now adults. And when the youngest turned 18, I kind of washed my hands of it. I said, you can have that relationship now if you want it. And I questioned myself whether I even should have done that, you know, because I found I would maintain these relationships that were really bad for me for the sake of my kids. And I don't know if that was the right thing to do. I think that might be a regret that I have mm -hmm. because they saw me with these people who brought out the worst in me, you know, and I'm not sure that that was the right thing to do for them. Yeah. And perhaps like showing them you accepting mere crumbs in relationships. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Love those crumbs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so did you have a slew of like toxic relationships before your husband? You know what? I was one of those who attracted good guys and pushed them away because I didn't think I deserved them. So honestly, I didn't have a lot of toxic relationships. My marriage was pretty toxic, but mainly because he was so emotionally avoided and I was so emotionally messed up, you know. Um, but I have to say, I met him when I was 19. So there wasn't even a lot of time to have relationships beforehand. 
Um, but I did have one, my first real boyfriend in high school, that was quite toxic. And I'd say that was turning abusive when I finally ended it. Um, he was starting to become kind of scary. So I think it would have gotten physical if I didn't end it there. And I have to say that that's one thing I would thank my father for. He was never physically abusive. And I think that is one of the reasons why I wouldn't tolerate that. Because I know that a lot of women who do um, get into physically abusive relationship, it's because what they've received from their fathers or seen their fathers do to their mothers, right? And because that wasn't my experience, I didn't tolerate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So was it difficult for you, like as you're kind of discovering, you know, the stuff about yourself and having new insights and perspective on your childhood? was it hard for you to grasp that what you had experienced was trauma? Yeah, I think because I had blamed myself for so long and other people in my life had blamed me too. You know, I'm a generation X and we grew up in a time where whatever, it's all about your choices. You know, you just made bad choices and everything in your life is a result of what you've done And that's your fault. That's your, that's the culmination of the choices you've made. There's nobody else to blame. And finding out that that's totally untrue and how deep this stuff goes. Um, Being able to say that I went through trauma is easy now, but it did take some time to get there because I I thought of trauma as something worse, especially because I didn't have physical abuse as part Mm -hmm. of my experience. And I was having a lot of trouble explaining to people because I grew up in a time where even emotional abuse wasn't really considered abuse. Even that is quite recent, maybe in the last 10 years or something. Um, So to say, you know, it's just so deep and it's something that you feel at a cellular level. So even trying to give examples of things, often it's what your parents did not do that hurt you more than what they did. So, you know, I remember trying to make my mother understand, which of course I've given up on now, but (laughs) at the time I thought I could. And she said, well, I don't know what your problem is. I didn't abuse you. I never hit you. And part of me was like, yeah, so what is my problem? You know, and it's the emotional neglect that I think is probably the worst. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you don't know that it's in there. Mm-hmm. And that I think even leads to more shame and more feeling like there's something inherently wrong with us because we feel like something that bad didn't really happen. You know, mm-hmm. like, why am I this screwed up when my parents never hit me? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And just finding out, I think the internet has helped a lot, you know, because you can just go online and you can see what other people are talking about. And realizing that it's not normal for your parents to never say a kind word to you, you know, it's not normal for your parents to not praise you when you get an award or do a good job. Um, Those are just real baseline things that every parent should do. So Yeah, just finding out that or just acknowledging that the way I was raised was not normal. It was not okay. And it really had a deep impact on me. Mm -hmm. And so what did that process look like of 
Well, I guess one, what did the process look like of, of coming to terms with the fact that it wasn't your fault? Yeah, I think it was really learning from people like Dr. Gabor Mate about, you know, he's pretty um, strict on his opinion that he thinks all addiction is a result of childhood trauma. And I don't know if that's true 100%, but I love that he says it because it, it really is validating and it makes you see that... Um, well, it isn't your fault, you know, and these things that we went through, I mean, we had to cope somehow, you know, I just found that being in reality was just too hard. And feeling unsupported was just too hard. So um, yeah, coping in any way I could was how I got through it. Mm-hmm. Um. So when you talk a lot about like Mm self-abandonment, what would you say are some really subtle ways that people are abandoning themselves that they might not realize that it's self-abandonment? Yeah, I would say there is a very natural response for those of us who have grown up with childhood trauma. And that is to not ask first, what's good for me? We tend to have this external focus because of the way we were raised that the first thing we ask is how can I please that person? Mm. How can I stay safe by making sure they're happy? And we do it by um, just letting down, you know, not even asking the question, what do I want here? That might feel just so unnatural. We never even do it, you know, and it could even be, you know, if you're in a social situation, you tend to read neutral expressions as negative, you know, somebody could just have kind of a normal expression. And you feel like they're they don't like you, or they're mad at you, and you do whatever you can to kind of get them on board or get them to like you. And there's the thing that I used to do where you're always the listener, You know, you're always listening while someone else is always talking. You're not offering a lot of information about yourself. And in this way, people don't really get to know you, right? So the self-abandonment that we do in these ways, is it's not only um, not helping you get your needs met, it's really dishonest because Mm -hmm. it is not helping other people get to know you. And I say in, in some of my blogs and in the book that healthy people detect this dishonesty and it makes them not trust you. Mm. So then you might feel that rejection and it kind of fuels the, you know, see, I'm not lovable. See, people don't like me. But in reality, it could be just them sensing something's kind of off because you are not communicating in an honest way. And it's important to say that's not your fault, which is what I always say. But it is something that you might want to be mindful of and take steps to improve or change. Well, that's what's so hard with all of this stuff is just like the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. And like how yeah. that, like, and climbing out of that, it's like so challenging. Mm-hmm. It really is because the dreaded social situations can really set you back. You know, I used to 
do a lot of the socializing thinking I've got to get out, I've got to make connections. But the way I was socializing wasn't helping me make connections because I was really just people pleasing and self abandoning. So I think that, um, yes, we need people, but I think first you got to have that connection with yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to really tune into who you are and what you want before you can start trying to connect with other people. What were some surprising things that you learned about yourself as you went through this journey? Um, that's a great question. I think some surprising things would be my strength. You know, I think I never thought of myself as a strong person and I can remember people telling me I was a strong person and I just thought, you know, I had the imposter syndrome. I thought they were just mistaken or I was doing a good job of acting. But I realize now, looking back at the way I was raised, it's like I wonder that I'm alive, really, you know, because my ACEs score is six, my resilience score is one, and those are really bad odds, you know. And so even the fact that I'm here makes me realize how strong I am. And the other surprising thing is learning that there's been no downside to exposing myself telling the truth about Mm. what I've been through has only connected me to more people it's really created this huge audience of other people who have been going through the same thing and who always say I love that you help me feel like I'm not alone and they do the same thing for me so even now if I sometimes you know the holidays are really hard for me it's very lonely time I'm not really in touch with most of my family except for my kids, of course. And so it's just a lonely time. And I went into my email and there were all these responses to an email I had sent to my list and, and just so heartwarming and just about how they're going through the same thing that I am. And that really lifted me up, you know? So that's been a wonderful surprise. That's beautiful. What, um, so what do you, what does your relationship look like with your parents? I don't, I haven't had contact with my mother for a while and that was they a long together? time. Coming. No, they got divorced when I was, well, you know, because they were so chaotic, they didn't end up getting divorced till I was 16, but they broke up multiple times before that. <laughs> my father moved out when I was seven, then he moved back in and they separated again. So I never knew what was going on. And they never told us about it. Like, I would just wake up and be like, oh, where's dad? You know, that kind of thing. So I think about how when I got divorced, how I we sat our kids down and we told them exactly what was going to happen. And we talked them through it and everything. And to look at the way my parents dealt with it, it was just insane. Um, yeah, so my mother... Um, that's been very hard, very damaging. And so we would go through these things where she would disown me, usually because I had said something she didn't like, or I didn't do something she wanted me to do. And then she would come back like nothing had happened. And I would just take her back, you know. And so that was a pattern for years. And then finally, one day, it might have been because I got sober, I'm not sure, because it's been a little while. But I finally was like, no, I'm not going to take you back. You know, I didn't say that to her, but I think I just 
I'm not sure if I didn't answer or I sent an email that said I'm not willing to put up with this anymore, that kind of thing, um, which really enraged her. But then eventually she offered for us to go to counseling. That made me very hopeful. We went to counseling together and I got to have a witness to what she's been putting me through. And she just went ballistic during one time the therapist invited me to just kind of bring up a topic that I wanted to discuss with my mother. And I remember thinking, you don't know what you're asking, you know, like you're, she's going to lose it. And the therapist looked so happy and she was like, you know, come on, let's discuss it. And I was like, okay. And I just said one little thing. My mother completely lost it. She ran out of the room screaming and um, the therapist said to me, I think your mother needs some individual counseling. <laughs> and, and that was kind of honestly the last time I really had contact with my mother. And since then, she sent gifts, which I call gaslighting gifts. You know, mm-hmm. they're not, nothing to do with me. They're all about um, the way she wants to present herself to me in books that I would never read and things like that. So um, yeah, I've been no contact with her for a few years. And my father, I had kind of held on to because he was less nefarious. Like I said, he was more the emotionally neglectful kind. Um, But I started to realize that he too really had been kind of scapegoating me. And after my divorce, he had decided that I broke up the whole family and there was just this sense that he didn't have any respect or any care for me. And finally, the last time I went to see him, I had this feeling like, why am I going? I was in the car driving there and thinking, why Mm -hmm. am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Like I've really worked hard to be really authentic in my life and to have authentic relationships what am I doing? Am I just going to go and sit there and bide my time for 90 minutes so I can say that I visited my father? And so when I got there, I just started speaking just very honestly and candidly. And it didn't go over well, of course. And then finally, I said to him, do you want a relationship with me? And he said, no. And so that was kind of like, Okay. And in the same way that you said things kind of come up when you're ready for them, I think I was ready to hear that because I knew that was true, but I had never asked. And I think it didn't devastate me. It kind of just made things make sense, you know? And so I told him, I'm going to leave the ball in your court. And um, I never really got anything from him since then. I think I got a card that said, Um, even though we don't see eye to eye, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I actually addressed it and I emailed him and I said, um, you know, sending, sending me a note that says this is because we don't, we see things differently as a form of gaslighting and I don't accept it. And I kind of Mm -hmm. gave a little synopsis of the way I felt I'd been treated throughout my life by him. And I said, I'm not letting you off the hook. And I've heard nothing. How did that feel? It felt okay. It felt like I told the truth. And the disappointing thing is that he didn't reply. And I think the little girl in me is always trying to get my father's attention. And so I was still hoping for a reply and I didn't get one. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you mentioned, you know, with your mother, how she would, you know, disown you 
and then act as if nothing ever happened. I mean, God, that was the scene in, in my family growing up, right? Like chaos followed by the next day as if nothing ever happened. Yeah. And I think, and I found myself doing that a lot with my dad too, like having him just blow up at me. And then after some time would pass, just him acting as if nothing happened. And then me just kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt and like sweeping it under the rug. But then I just realized that like, I just kept putting myself in a position to be hurt. And I think it's so hard because we all just have this fantasy that like one day our parent is going to be the parent that we've always so desperately hoped that they would be. It's so true, Andrea, that is so true. And then there's also the issue of sunk cost, you know, like think about Mm. all the years I wasted trying to forge a relationship with him. And it made me think I wish I had done this 10 years ago. But at the same time, I have to trust that everything happens when it's supposed to happen. Yeah, in divine Mm -hmm. timing. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. How have you dealt with the anger? Like, do you feel like you've found a place of forgiveness for your parents? Yeah, surprisingly, I think I have. And it came very naturally. You know, I've just lost the resentment. I think for me, I don't know the definition of forgiveness, but I think it has to do with losing the feeling of resentment. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it really has to be an active thing where you say, I forgive you. You certainly don't have to tell them. Um, But I do feel I've reached a place of forgiveness simply because I don't care that much anymore. You know, like I just feel like I've totally let go of wanting their attention, wanting their love I feel like it's none of my business anymore. And I just want to go on and live the life that I deserve, you know? Mm -hmm. So when you're working with um, a client one-on-one and let's say that they are engaging in some sort of of self-sabotaging behavior, but they're not really quite able to connect what is the underlying root. How are you kind of helping them suss that out? Yeah, I think it's really interesting how many people don't know that their self-sabotage is actually self-protection that they learned as a child. So what we do is what's called inner child work or inner child healing and just learning that the ways that you're sabotaging yourself are actually the ways that your inner child is trying to keep you safe. And I really encourage people to, instead of um, criticizing that inner child, which is what we always do, we say, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. You shouldn't do that. And instead, thank the inner child for trying to keep you safe, you know, thank the inner child for trying to protect you the best way that they could. And then when you have that, when you take away the criticism and the pushing down the inner child, you might find that the child now wants to do what children are supposed to do. So instead of having this burden of trying to protect you, they become the one who wants to get curious about life and play and explore And all the things that life is really about that we've been denied, 
you know, because when you're in that survival brain, you're not thinking about play and curiosity and exploring what the world has to offer. You're just in this little tunnel, you know, and so that inner child work can really expand what's possible for you and make life fun again, you know? Yeah, that really brings up some things for me. Um, this this whole year has been like a struggle for me to um there's just there's like just always this fear that I'm gonna like self-sabotage, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm just gonna fuck it all up. And um I realize, you know, the way that I the way that I safe stayed safe and the way that I saved my family was by being the fuck up. Right. You know, like I was the identified patient, Mm -hmm. you know, I was the scapegoat and that helped my parent, my mom to stop drinking as much. And my parents stop fighting and just realizing still how there's that part of me that thinks that if I'm doing well, well, that means then my family's not going to do well. Wow. That's an amazing insight. That is such a powerful insight. And I really think that you just even knowing that is so powerful. To me, that's the key, really. So what are your, when you're working one-on-one with a client, do you feel like, this is my opinion, I think it's really hard to really do the healing work on ourselves if we're actively involved in a very abusive or toxic relationship with our parents. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's kind of sort of like dating that where we need to take this time to work, be single and like really focus on ourselves and do that healing work. And then obviously there's more to be healed and resolved, like as we dip our toe back into the dating pond. And I think the same can be said for, as it relates to like our relationship with our parents that it's really hard to navigate our own healing if we're continuing to engage in an abusive relationship with them. And perhaps one day we will get to a place where we've kind of, you know, healed enough or healed some parts of us that we're able to, to try to figure out and navigate that relationship in a way that works for us. Or maybe we, maybe we find out that we can't, but I think it's really hard to heal if we're continuing to be hurt. Yeah, it's definitely hard to heal if you keep the things in your life that are hurting you the same as they've always been. We have to change, right? And a lot of that is changing relationships. And that doesn't have to mean detaching or going no contact, but the nature of the relationship has to change, right? And so I find what happens is part of the program that I go through with my clients is to do with accepting the limitations of other people. Mm. So I don't tell anybody whether they should keep a relationship or whether they should leave. But what I found is that when they begin focusing on themselves and their own needs, those relationships tend to change on their own. And if they don't, they might go away, you know, Mm. they might have to end. So like you said, the work is on yourself. And out of that comes the confidence, the boundaries, all that good stuff that establish what you're willing to put up with in a relationship. And then, you know, the people who can't tolerate that, they may not have a place in your life or they may have a different place. And I can say one of my clients 
was married to someone who was very emotionally abusive. And it was frustrating to me because part of me was like, why are you with this person? But through doing the work and through teaching her to turn the gaze on herself, think about her own needs instead of fretting over the fact that he's doing what he's always done, which is not trying to meet your needs. He did change. Like he start. she said, he's been defending me to my daughters. He's been on my side. And all those years of her begging him to pay attention to her and begging him to, you know, see her didn't have any effect but once she started to give that to herself Mm -hmm. that's when the relationship started to change so I'm really a big advocate of meeting your own needs as an adult rather than looking to especially looking to the same people that you know have never done that for you you know like our parents and so on and I've been there I know that feeling of wanting these people to change but the likelihood is that they're not going to and you have to accept that and if you don't want to accept it, you have to think about changing the relationship. How has this healing and transformation impacted your relationship with your kids? Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm divorced. So I've always had to co-parent with my ex and he's he's made it kind of difficult. And that was another <laughs> thing that... <Shocking. laughs> yeah, that was another thing that... I had to learn about that I didn't know is that he was doing this parental alienation thing. So he was really encouraging the kids to keep secrets from me. And when they were with me, he would always call. And I remember, you know, our spidey senses are often right. And I would think, why does he always call when they're here, like every day or twice a day? And then I found out through just reading something that that's a form of parental alienation. So it's trying to drive a wedge between you and the kids rather than just give you the time alone with them, you know? So I've really learned that when my stomach says something's wrong, usually something is wrong, you know? And um, so with my kids, it's well, let's pause there because yeah. I think that that's probably something that a lot of, I'm sure that there's a lot of, you know, p- people listening out there that are co-parenting that are probably in a toxic dynamic like that. Yeah. So how did you handle that situation? You know, I handled it the best way I could because at the time I didn't have all the knowledge that I have now. And I was really, at first, I was trying to appease him, thinking that, you know, kind of if I give him what he wants, then he'll back off. But what I've learned is that bullies, when you give them what they want, they just want more, you know, like you, they just kind of the goalpost keeps changing, right? So, um, so knowing what you know, now, what advice would you have given to yourself back then? I would say I would have stood up to him a hundred percent and I would have advocated for myself and I would have got support for advocating for myself in the form of a lawyer earlier. I ended up doing that finally near the end, but I would have, I would have enlisted support instead of trying to do this myself, especially with going through getting sober and all that stuff. You know, I just, because I was so used to going through things on my own, I, I don't think I really, took advantage of the supports that were available to me. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, it wasn't really a fair fight. He's much richer and more powerful than I was and all of that stuff. 
Um, so yeah, that's what I would say is just don't ever think that you can appease someone like that. Um, stand up for yourself, like learn how to get support, read up on things, read about, you know, narcissistic exes if you need to, and, um, don't do it alone. That's what I would say. I think that for a lot of parents, it's hard when they're kind of coming to terms with their childhood trauma and, and, and realizing how often, you know, we treat our kids or put them in same positions that we were put in as kids. And so what was that like for you? Yeah, I would say that I did that without realizing it, because as my children became adults, as they got into the older teenage years, we had kind of a rupture and repair situation. So I didn't realize that they hadn't really felt free to be honest with me about how they felt, that they were kind of telling me what they thought I wanted to hear. And then eventually, you know, things came out and they were finally honest with me. And when that happened, it really gave me a chance to look at myself and say, like, wow, you know, this, you weren't so perfect at this as you thought you were you didn't do such a great job as you thought you did and you have some amends to make to these kids you know and so I did make the amends to them I did tell them that I was sorry that they didn't feel like they could be honest with me and this shows the beauty of when you take that you know whereas maybe your parents or my parents for sure would take that criticism as a reason to disown you Mm-hmm. The fact that I could take that criticism and repair the relationship was such a gift. And so we're not perfect still, but our relationship is much more honest and they want to see me now, you know, and it's just real. And I'm so glad that we had that chance to get real with each other instead of going on with them feeling like they couldn't really tell me everything, you know? Mm -hmm. What a gift. Yeah, it really was. And that was, that was the gift that our parents, you and I, they don't have, you know, because they're too scared of that repair. Yeah. They're just not capable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I, we are so lucky. Mm -hmm. We have this absolutely heal. So talk about this workshop thing that you got coming up. Oh, yeah, I've got a retreat that's coming up at the end of February. It's going to be February 21st to 23rd. And I'm happy to say that you're going to be a speaker. It's a multi-speaker event. So I've got about 14 speakers lined up. Nice. And yeah, and it's going to go over the course of three days. And the videos will be um, about 25 to 35 minutes long. You'll have the day to watch them. And it's called the Dysfunctional Family Detox. So it's all about overcoming these toxic family dynamics that we've been discussing today. And you'll be fixed in three days after watching all of them. (laughs) I hope you will get some tools that you can use on your healing journey for sure. And I hope that you will feel less alone, you know, that you'll just have this chance to be around people who are going through the same thing as you and find out how they dealt with it. Is there going to be like a, is there like an interactive part to it? Yeah, there'll be a Facebook group. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Is this your first time doing something like this? 
No, I did one last year that went really well. It was called the Reparenting Yourself Retreat. Mm -hmm. So it was a similar theme, but I've decided to really focus on the dysfunctional family dynamics this time. Um, but it went really well last year, and that's why I decided to do another one. I got a lot of great feedback. That's what your course is called, right? Is it self-parenting or yeah. reparenting? The self-parenting solution is what I call it. And how long of a program is that? That is pretty short. It's eight lessons, but they're very bite-sized. You know, you could do them in as little as 20 minutes, um, but there's implementation. So I kind of give steps at the end of each lesson that you can take with you over the course of the next week and kind of make sure you implement this stuff into your life. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so that one is online. It's very easy to access. It's a really low price point. And it just goes through many of the issues like negative self-talk, setting boundaries, toxic people, you know, just dealing with all the things that can be difficult for us when we've grown up with these unmet childhood needs. So learning to reparent the inner child, basically. At the beginning of this work, I thought all of this stuff was like pretty corny, like, <laughs> you know, like reparenting sounded so corny to me um inner child that's something that's like kind of taken me a little while to um to like come on board with and I think what I've realized and I was talking to my therapist about it was I think part of the reason it was so hard for me to connect with that inner child or I had the resistance in going there is because I didn't feel like a child when I was a child I yeah. felt like a little adult yeah Yes. And that's one thing too, is that you hear a lot of people say like self-help experts will say, you know, if you want to reclaim your joy, think about what you did when you were a child. You know, when you were a child, you were playful and you're you like, no, when I was a child. Like, things fucking sucked. I was miserable. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I remember any of that <laughs> when I was a child. So you're, you're speaking to the wrong person. And I think a lot of us feel like that, like, no, childhood was not joyful for me. And so you have to go even farther back, like maybe to when you were a toddler or a baby to find who you were before all these things kind of got their clutches in you. So what, what would be a good baby step for someone to like, just start connecting with that inner child? Yeah, I would say just um, even spend the day with it. Like, think about what does that look like? Take your child out for ice cream, you know, take your child to the arcade, like just go and do something that is fun for you, you know, and maybe you don't know yet what's fun for you, but this is the time to start to recognize that. So you can make a list of things that you love to do. You can use your senses as a guide. So think about what you like to listen to, see, smell, touch, taste. Use those to guide you. And then just just go out there and get it, you know. Just, go out there and get it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Do a date. I'd say that's the first thing. Just be nice to yourself. What's fun for your inner child? You know what? Fun for my inner child is solitary activities. Mm. I used to love doing things like playing with Barbies, rug hooking, paper dolls. So 
I still like that. I still like, I mean, I don't play with Barbies, but I like doing things that are solitary. Like I remember when I was doing this inner child work at first, I went and bought rug hooking kits and I just started doing them. And it's very meditative. And it reminded me of things that like, it helped me connect with myself again, you know, because I think a lot of us have trouble. We often don't have hobbies, you know, we often don't have things we do just for fun. And a lot of that is the inability to relax, or it could be the feeling, you know, inside that we don't deserve it. You know, we've always got to be proving our worth. So even just doing things that you enjoy can be the work. You know, what the hell is rug hooking? <laughs> I'll send you a picture of it. It's like um, crochet. It's like that. It's so simple. It's so simple that any child can do it. Um, you just have this kind of grid pattern with a picture on it and different colors. Oh, and then yeah, you have yeah, yeah, yeah. Little yeah. pieces of wool and a tool yeah. that you attach. And so with the different colors, you just kind of attach this wool to create this picture very easy rug hooking yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) well this has been great where can you be found if you want to be found yeah i think probably the best place to find me would be on instagram and that's at laura k connell and you could go to the link don't forget that k yeah yeah that's it it follows me around now um what does it say for it's kim stands for kim yeah And so everything about me is there. If you like what you see there, you'll resonate with my work. And feel free to DM me too and let me know that you found me through Andrea's podcast and I'd be happy to chat. Yeah. And let her know if you're a fellow uh, rug hooking gal. (laughs) Yes. And if you you know what that is. Yeah. Well, thanks. This has been great. (laughs) Thanks, Andrea. that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. As always, I know that you did. And as always, if you didn't, damn the join Patreon, okay? <laughs> 705, baby. It's 705, baby. Woo! I might have this shit locked and loaded by like eight o'clock. Party time. Um, I thought that that interview was great. Thanks, Laura. Go check out the show notes for all of her information. And as I said, I will update you once I have the information on the rescheduled workshop that she's having or the conference. Um, What else? Um, Going on the dating apps here. It's a little, little depressing. Let's see if I have anything interesting. Well, I'll tell you this. So this one person, this one guy... He's like, just messaged me. <laughs> he just wrote, HNY, like Happy New Year. And I responded. Um, I unmatched with him. Hold on, let me, I took a screenshot of it. He said, HNY. And I said, come on, you got to put in a little more effort here. And then he wrote back and he said, didn't know if I was, if I were, didn't know if I were typing to a ghost. Ha ha. The ghost of Bumble past. And then like sent me a meme of like, I don't know if this is like whoever says like waka waka waka. Like, I don't know what Muppet that is. 
Um, I unmatched after that. <laughs> he didn't say anything else after that. It was just the waka waka waka. And then I gave him like a couple hours to see like, okay, let's see. You got anything? Nope. Unmatched. Fun times. Fun times. <laughs> um, I still don't have my shit. Oh, I had like a scary moment today. So I called the moving company to see um, when my shit is going to be there here. And it just call failed, call failed, call failed. Like the number like was like no longer in existence. I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm thinking, this is just the, ch- the cherry on the top of, of my moving experiences. Now I'm going to find out that this like moving company went out of business and I'm not going to have any of my shit. The couch made it, guys. The couch arrived. Um, but thankfully I emailed them and they got back to me. Still don't know when my shit's going to be here, but at least I know my shit still exists. So just going with the flow, just going with the flow. And one day I will have some furniture, um, and a, and a bed to sleep on. I know what I'm going to do tonight now that I have all this time. Cause I finished this just so early. I need to, well, I have this like large pile. Here's another way of my unmanageability manifesting. I have like this huge shit of like all this shit that I need to like take to the recycling, I already like broke everything down. So that was like kind of the first thing was like, you know, I had like all these boxes well of shit, but I needed to break all the boxes down. And so then I'm like, all right, like, let's do it. Let's clean up. And so then I break down all the boxes and, and then like everything's like ready to go to go the recycling. But then of course I just let that shit just stay there for like three days. Um, I'm going to go take care of that now. So I will see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's gonna be super awesome, super bummer, super excited. You're not here. It's gonna be a getting